there are but two religions in the world. One where Christ is the head, and the other, divided into many parts, where Satan governs the thoughts of man. It is that simple. Again, I understand there are, as I say, many parts to those under Satan's rule, but either Christ is head or Satan is the head of other churches. The cause of salvation in one is grace, and in the other it is works. That, again, is how simple things are. The conflict between these two religions has presented itself in various ways. The Protestant Reformation was a time of heightened conflict. And like many in the Church of Works, the Roman Catholic Church had mixed works with professions of grace. And whenever you mix works with grace, you deny grace. That's Paul's point. If by grace, then is it no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. The Roman Catholic Church didn't deny the necessity of God's grace and God's favor, but they asserted the necessity of human effort in the performance and reception of the sacraments. As I was preparing for this message this week, I began to dig in a little bit into the Council of Trent. Again, in the mid-1500s, that council really was the primary work of counter-reformation examining the teaching of the reformers and bringing a, a, a robust response as they sought to the teaching of our Reformation forefathers. And in the Council of Trent, again, I, I probably spent too much time reading through the material uh, in that document, but in the Council of Trent, you've you got to read it very, very carefully. In many, many ways, they acknowledge the necessity of God's grace for the salvation of man. Listen to what they say regarding the fallen nature of the seed of Adam. They say this, If they were not born again in Christ, they would never be justified, since in that new birth there is bestowed upon them, through the merit of his passion, the grace by which they are made just. Now, the language there is imprecise and when they expand upon that, you see some tremendous errors in their thinking. But just on the bare surface, they acknowledge the need, due to man's depravity, of the grace of God and the work of God. Now, they, they say this. This translation, however, cannot, since promulgation of the gospel, be effected except through the lever of regeneration or its desire. By that, they're referring to baptism. Either desire for it or the reception of it, that's necessary for this translation to occur. And so immediately you see, very early on in their statements, session six of the Council of Trent, very early on in their statements regarding justification and salvation, they begin to mix again sacramental works with the grace of God. They continue this. It is furthermore declared that an adult's the beginning of that justification must proceed from the predisposing grace of God. What are you saying there? If you're going to be saved, you must have the grace of God through Jesus Christ. 
that is, from his vocation, from his calling, whereby, without any merits on their part, they are called. It's an acknowledgement again, there's no merits in man. It's only by the grace and the call of Christ Jesus. But listen to this. They may be disposed through his quickening and helping grace to convert themselves to their own justification by freely assenting to and cooperating with that grace. Now, before we listen to those words and say that's just Roman Catholicism, no, that is also the case in many supposedly evangelical churches have the same idea that God's predisposing grace allows men thereby to assent and cooperate with that grace. Now, there are differences, but this is really a statement of what we might know as semi-Pelagianism, that God may help, but man must cooperate. But they say this, so that while God touches the heart of man through the elimination of the Holy Ghost, man himself neither does absolutely nothing while receiving that inspiration, since he also can reject it, nor yet is he able by his own free will and without the grace of God to move himself to justice in his sight. He's unable without the grace of God. And so you, you get very, very clear statements regarding the necessity of God's grace. So be careful when you're discussing things and discussing Roman Catholicism with people in this area, make it very clear that you understand that you're not saying they deny the necessity of God's grace. What they've done is add works to grace. But in so doing, they therefore deny the nature of grace. But it's a mixture. Again, you go further in terms of their understanding of justification, you get some of the really confused language regarding what justification is. They say this, Justification is not only our remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inward man. Those of you who have studied Catholicism will understand this concept. We affirm justification to be a legal act of God, whereby we are accepted, our sins are forgiven, and we're accepted as right because of Christ's work. In Roman Catholicism, justification is not only legal, but also as a moral change. Now, now, we rightly distinguish between justification and sanctification. They merge the two together. And as they merge the two together, you get a further development of the mixture between grace and works. If you're going to deal with neighbors and loved ones and family members on this issue, you must understand these things clearly. And so they talk about this inward renewal through the voluntary reception of grace and the gifts whereby an unjust man becomes just. Again, this mixture, this language that brings a mixture that is, that is so very, very difficult. See, when they discuss the nature of faith, they acknowledge the separate causes that there are for our justification. They acknowledge the meritorious, this is their language, the meritorious cause is his most beloved and only begotten, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they call the meritorious cause of justification. They refer to the instrumental cause of this. The instrumental cause is the sacrament of baptism, 
which is the sacrament of faith. So they're getting the idea that through baptism, there is this new heart, and in the new heart then comes the faith which justifies. They don't deny faith. They don't deny grace. They misunderstand them, and they mix these things terribly to bring about great error. But in language terms, you must be crystal clear. Or else the Catholic will simply say to you, you don't understand what you're talking about. You haven't read or catechisms and or confessional standards such like the Council of Trent. You see, what they say regarding faith, they make the point that faith, unless hope and charity be added to it, neither unites man perfectly with Christ nor makes him a living member of his body. I'm going to read that again. Faith, unless hope and charity be added to it, neither unites man perfectly with Christ nor makes him a living member of his body. What they're saying is, works must be part of the faith that saves. It's this mixing and mingling of these two things. And so they talk about the increase of justification. Have you ever heard that term preached from this pulpit? Not against it, but for it. Have you ever heard some idea that your justification can be increased? At this point, you can all raise a collective never. You're meant to do that. No, hypothetically. We would never speak about the increase of our justification. What they, again, those who defend them will say, well, what they mean by that is the, is the fruit and the evidence of justification, the, the improving of justification. You're, you're justified, in, and from that then comes these, these various works and fruits and evidences. But that is not what they mean. Because when you come, and the, the canons of the Council of Trent are, are the best known part of the council. So they'll, they'll state various doctrines, and then they'll, they'll, they'll assert these canons, which have the famous anathemas. And when you come to the canons of section, section 6, you, you get to see these various things. Listen to the first one. If any man says that man can be justified before God by his own works, whether done by his own natural powers or through the teaching of the law, without divine grace through Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Now, you did not mishear what I said there. If anyone says that man can be justified before God by his own works, let him be anathema. That's what they said. They don't teach salvation by works alone. That is not what the Catholic Church teaches. But they say this, Canon 9. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary to be prepared and disposed by the action's own will, let him be anathema. So now they're making the point that the grace is a grace which you must synergistically cooperate with, working together with this grace in order for you to be justified. And in that statement, they begin to deny the very essence of the grace of God. Romans 11, verse 6, If it by grace, then it is no more of works. Paul is so sharp in distinguishing these terms. 
Now, if you look at your bulletin, I, I, I printed out for you Session 6, Canon 24. Because this one, again, is the part that refers to this idea of increasing your justification. And by the way, I, thank you for your patience. I, I know where I'm going here. You don't know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. This is all laying the foundational groundwork we're going to see. Canon 24. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of his increase, let him be anathema. So the justification in Catholic thinking is only preserved by the presence of good works. And so we find a living, real example in the second religion, not that under Christ, but an apostate religion, you find this mixing and mingling of grace and works. And therefore, it is vital that we as God's people understand these concepts and affirm clearly salvation is by grace alone. And we know what that means. And we make sure we can defend that concept in the word of God that we're not going to be guilty of any way of allowing works to slip into our theology whereby we're saved. And when we get to the last point of today's sermon, there is a modern Protestant effort to confuse and undermine the conception of salvation by grace alone without works. We must be on our guard. We must be vigilant and determined to affirm time and time again what you know. You say, yes, I know salvation by grace alone. I've been raised in this church. I've come into this church. Whatever the case may be, you affirm it. But you must understand and defend it with all of your souls. In distinction to the Council of Trent, our own confession says this. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, as opposed to the Council of Trent, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. So clearly, Paul affirms in Romans 11, verse 6, this stark division between grace and works. And so stark is the division that there cannot be any intermingling. It's either salvation by grace or it's salvation by works. It cannot and must not and will never be salvation by some combination of the two. It's either grace or it's works. And so with that in mind, we look at this section in Romans 11. Remind you again of the context of these chapters 9 through 11 where we're seeing the widespread rejection by Jews of Jesus as their Messiah. And there are, there are two particular themes that stand out in these chapters. One is the theme of the remnant. Again, we, we looked at this in our studies in Elijah. I'm not going back over the material, but verse number four, I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. God's covenant promises with Israel finds expression in his preser preservation of a saved spiritual seed. Chapter 9 and chapter 11, God's promises to Israel stand fast because he keeps a remnant. There's always a saved remnant. 
There's always those within Israel who are saved by God's grace who do accept Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul is case in point. So the remnant is one. The other issue that's at stake in these verses is the fact that the remnant, like all, they are saved by grace. All are saved by grace. No works. Chapter 9, verse number 32. That they did not attain the law of righteousness, wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. So again, throughout these three chapters, there's a remnant concept, but there's also this idea that the salvation that comes to the remnant is salvation by grace through faith without works. Chapter 10, verse number 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, without works. So as we look at this subject then, just with a few moments that remain for this morning, I want to remind you, and affirm afresh in your hearing the fact that salvation is all of grace. And you'll see in your outline there, we're going to do this in, in, the, four, in the four main sections and phases of, of salvation. Election is by grace. Justification is by grace. Sanctification is by grace. And glorification is by grace. First of all, election is by grace. Verse number five. Even so, then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. The word election means what it says. It refers to a choice that is made. It refers to consideration, an act of choice, an act of the will to make a choice. And God's will operates in his election is choosing certain people unto salvation. That is God's work. And I think one of the reasons we find this difficult is that generally speaking, we do not engage in unconditional choices as people. We make choices because of what we perceive or see in the object of our choices. Your choice of a husband or a wife. It wasn't unconditional. You, didn't, you weren't going to room blindfolded. 30 Potential wives in that room, and you just walk through the room, and whoever you bump shoulders with, well, that's your wife. No, you perceived things in your wife that were that were attractive and that you desired, and that was that was how you began to choose your, your wife or your husband. Even something as trivial as, as ice cream, there are things that you desire in that particular flavor, and you, you choose that opposed to others. We should never ever think of God's choice in those categories. The idea of God is not by conditional choice having perceived good in the object. It is of God's free choice, without condition, without any merits. Again, chapter 9, verse 11 makes that so abundantly clear. It's referring again, of course, to the, to the seed, the children. Having not yet, uh, sorry, the children being not yet born neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. The very issue of election is to undermine the concept of works. 
Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated, not because they'd done anything good or ill, but because of God's free choice to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. That's the doctrine of election. And it is by very definition, election according to grace alone. There's no time before God's choice to act. God's electing choice is before time. Part of the eternal counsel of God. No potential for man to act in advance. But also, this election is by grace in that it is not through some foreseen goodness or faith. Get back in Romans 11. I passed over this reference very quickly last time, where it says there in verse 2, God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. And there are various ideas regarding the people mentioned here in verse number 2. But I think it's impossible to define the people without understanding how Paul used the word foreknew back in chapter 8. Those who were foreknown in chapter 8 are those who are then called justified and glorified. They are those who are predestined. This is Romans chapter 8 verse number 29. For him he did foreknow. And without any change in explanation, Paul has taken that same concept in chapter 11, referring to this people. And so the idea is, he's referring to people who are within ethnic Israel, but they are those who are foreknown of God before time began. The elect of God are never, ever cast away. They are that remnant that God preserves, a remnant according to the election of grace. But I take you back to our studies in Romans chapter 8 some some years ago now. God does not foresee man's actions in that text. The word means to forelove. God freely, unconditionally chose to love some out of the mass of humanity, set love upon them without them making any condition. Even in the very concept of election, it's unthinkable for God to decree man's good works, including faith, and then choose them based upon their good works. For the performance of those good works would have required God to choose them unto those good works beforehand. You may want to go back and start not listen to that again. But the very idea of foreseen faith being a condition of God's choice presupposes God's choice unto that foreseen faith. It's all of grace. No merit, no condition, no works, nothing. Election is of grace. We must always live every day thankful for God's unmerited favor. We are of the same lump of fallen humanity as everyone else. And God in his mercy and kindness for no good in us chose us in Christ Jesus. Justification is also of grace. Romans 3 verse 24 states it explicitly. Romans 3 in the verse number 24 just simply states it this way. Being justified freely by his grace. It's a double term being used there, being justified graciously. It's in grace that we're graciously justified. 
It's all of God's grace. And that's illustrated. So chapter 3 of Romans that sets out how we're justified. Well, it's through Christ's work. It's it's through his propitiation. But then we, we come to be justified personally by believing in Christ's work. And that's illustrated then in chapter 4 of Romans. In the examples of Abraham and David. And so it says there, Romans 4 verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertained to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath were off the glory, but not before God. For what said the scriptures? Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. And here's the issue. The minute we begin to contribute some works to your salvation, we undermine the necessity of grace. If it's all of grace, then works are not required. And God's glory is attained that he does not require works of us to secure our salvation. And so it says in verse number 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. It is to the one that worketh not. Again, Paul comes back to that later on in this chapter, verse number 9. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. That, that's Genesis chapter 15. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised. Again, the Lord God in his kindness is making the point that Abraham is justified by God, not by his works, and not by any sign of God's covenant promises. It's not by some ceremony or some sacrament. It's all of God's grace. It's all of faith, and it's not of works. Spurgeon makes this point. The argument is very clear and conclusive. Abraham was justified by faith, therefore by grace. And this justification was not given to him as a circumcised man. Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. It's all in connection, says Spurgeon, with faith and grace. Well, I'll ask you a question. If you're having this conversation with your Roman Catholic loved one or friend or neighbor, and they say, well, why is faith? And grace, why are they connected? What is it about faith that makes it according to grace? Is faith not kind of a work that we do? Is that our action to to believe? Therefore, can we not say that faith is a work to some degree? But well, well, Paul doesn't say that. Paul's very clear. When we say faith, it's not works. That's his point. Grace not works, faith not works, these things come together. Well, on the one hand, we could say, well, faith is given to us by God. By grace, you see, through faith, it's a gift of God. Ephesians 2, verse number, uh, verse number 8 and 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. Philippians chapter 1, it is given, granted to us, given to us on behalf of Christ, known to suffer, but also believe. So the, the gift of faith is part of the answer. But there's more. What is faith itself? Faith 
is taking the works of another and acknowledging that your works aren't sufficient. That's what you're doing. Faith is an act in itself that denies the necessity or the suitability of any of our works. They are different. And when Roman Catholics or Protestants begin to mix faith and works, or see faith as a work, they're misunderstanding the very grace of God. By grace we believe, and in our belief we accept the fact our works are nothing. Christ's work is everything. It's by grace that we're justified. Thirdly, it is by grace that we are sanctified. I'm moving quickly because I I think you understand these things uh, well in your own experience, but by grace we are sanctified. And this is where things get somewhat more complex. But we must affirm this. Sanctification is not by our works. And yet sadly there are many, and I was one of those in my early Christian life that I fell in the trap of presuming that I, I kept my own sanctification and therefore my own salvation by my works. Saved by grace, kept by works. And then you live this life where you, you have a bad day and you presume you're going to hell. And you have a good day and you think you're okay. Do you understand the problem there? Your bad day was worse than you thought. And your good day wasn't very good at all. And your good day was therefore the basis whereby you thought you're accepted of God. You see, we must affirm, and young people are not so young, we must remind ourselves day by day that we're sanctified by God's grace. It's all of God's grace. Now, we are clearly told to work. We are clearly made in Christ Jesus unto good works, Ephesians 2, verse number 10. We, We understand these things. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the works that we do are only performed by grace, and those works, and here's the point, those works are not in any way meritorious to our salvation. They don't add to our justification. They don't increase our justification. That's what the Catholics teach. They don't even preserve our justification. Your works do nothing to your standing before God. That's not what they're about. See, look, please, at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because here I want to show you there, there are two different aspects of sanctification. One is initial or definitive. And this is where I believe the Roman Catholic Church have confused things. Because there is in the Bible a doctrine of definitive sanctification. But it's not the same as justification. It's different than justification. The terms are different. The words mean different things. And to merge them because to merge them causes great confusion. But when we separate them, we're not suggesting there's not such a thing as definitive initial sanctification. Verse number 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints, or called to be saints. The, the Corinthians, 
full of remaining sin and corruption and errors, and yet they are referred to as those that are sanctified. And the word does not refer to the legal act of justification. Justification is God declaring the sinner righteous. Sanctification is God taking that sinner and setting them apart. Whereby they are called to be saints. Called, changed by God, inwardly renewed and regenerated by the grace of God. And they're called to be saints, which is the noun attached to the verb to sanctify. They are set apart by God's grace through this moral renewal. So there is God's work in our souls whereby we are made new in Christ Jesus. But even that moral renewal is by grace alone. Paul says to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 9, who hath saved us and called us, called to be saints, 1 Corinthians, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Our work of faith does not lead to this work of sanctification. Some of that idea. You come to believe the gospel, you're born again, and you're inwardly renewed. No, all of this happens together in God's grace. There is this moral renewal, but you don't earn that. You don't earn that by believing. It comes freely by God's grace. It's also the case, not only is initial sanctification by grace, but so also is progressive. Look at Philippians chapter 2, and you know this verse, Philippians chapter 2. And the verse number 12. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The only way whereby we work out our salvation is because of God's grace working in us. Not only granting us the ability to work, but also the will to do that work it is of God that we desire. It is of God that we do. His work in us produces the will and the work itself. Do you ever stop to ask God for the desire to be more holy? Is this something you do in your soul? Well, you, you see an area of your life and that there are some of God's people and they understand they ought to be like this or like that in their home life, in their church life, in society. They, they see a gap in their sanctification. But truth be told, they don't desire that. Ask for God to give you desire. It is of Him that you will and work. And when the desire comes, then you're back on your knees and you say, Lord, by your grace, enable me to do what I must do in accordance to your will. It's all of grace. And as it's of grace, we must not depend upon even spirit-wrought works as the ground of our justification and assurance. Our confession of faith is so clear in this. God does not accept their person as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them. 
Roman Catholicism has the idea that God infuses righteousness into people whereby on that basis they can be right before God. The Spirit's work in us does not contribute to our justification. Even Spirit-wrought works do not make us more righteous before God. It's Christ alone. But finally, glorification is by grace, not works. We must affirm afresh that our final salvation, our final glorification is also by grace and not by works. And you say, well, okay, why the big deal? Because the Bible speaks many times about a final judgment according to works and about the role that works play in our glorification. And thereby, some have begun to take their eye off the ball and speak in language that is not clear regarding the nature of our final salvation and glorification. If we insert works into our final glorification, we make a vital aspect of our redemption dependent upon our works. And we shouldn't do so. And let me say a couple of things. First of all, the faith that alone saves is never alone. Always comes with works. We accept that. It's also the case that works provide evidence of God's work in us. The work of God in us producing faith is also evidenced in our works of obedience and holiness to God. But those works in no way contribute to your standing before God. We've said that already. So God works in us, producing faith. The work in us that produces faith also produces good works. But those works do not contribute to our standing before God. Now I'm going to read to you language of one modern author. Now there are several I could have chosen from. And the concern I have is the language they use is not precise enough on this issue and leads to confusion amongst God's people. Listen to this. These works of faith and this obedience of faith, these fruits of the Spirit that come by faith, are necessary for our final salvation. No holiness no heaven. So we should not speak of getting to heaven by faith alone in the same way we are justified by faith alone. No, nay, never. We must always speak about getting to heaven by faith alone in the exact same way that we speak of being justified by faith alone. The language has confused many. They have sought to separate the concept of justification by faith alone and affirm that, declare that boldly, we believe in justification by faith alone, but they have this concept that our final salvation is dependent upon the presence of good works. And those good works are necessary for the securing of our final salvation. 
Now, my concern is the language. And there are people who have written and defended themselves and all over the place regarding trying to, to, sh- to, to get away from the obvious conclusions. But the language is so confusing. It shouldn't take books to explain this. It shouldn't. Let's think about this. Matthew 25. The sheep and the goats are divided. On what basis? On the basis of works. There are those who visit and are kind and do these things. There are the sheep and there are the goats and there's a, there's a distinguishing between the two. James 2 makes it clear. Faith without works is dead. Works are indeed the evidence that confirms the presence of genuine faith. But James is not suggesting those works are our justifying basis. The works that James refers to are the evidence of our faith. Not the ground of our standing before God. And so yes, there is. In the scripture's language of the final judgment according to works. Revelation chapter 20. The dead were judged of those things written in the books according to their works. So works are important. Works are important. My question is, are they deemed in the word of God to be necessary? Listen again to the language of this modern writer. These works of faith, this obedience of faith, are necessary for our final salvation. That language is not helpful. It is confusing. It is not the fact that works are necessary for us to get into heaven. It is the fact that works are inevitable. That they will be there. Because of God's work by His Spirit in our hearts, and the works that are inevitable give evidence of the faith that is in Christ alone. So the presence of works serve the function of a public declaration of the presence of faith, but the faith has its object in Christ and in Christ alone. Works are indeed evidentiary. Sheep are identified as sheep because of what they do. God's people, they are holy, they live a good life in God's grace, and thereby they are shown to be sheep. You know, you can go out there, it's a bit snowy right now, you can go out there, you can put your head in the grass for the next four days and chew grass, you will not become a sheep. It's not going to happen. And you won't become a Christian by doing good works. But you look out there and there's a sheep eating grass. Yeah, it's a sheep. And so it is for God's children. We don't become God's children by works. But as God's children, we do works. But those works don't contribute one iota to your entrance into heaven. They are not necessary to get into heaven. But they'll always be there. They won't be absent. But they do not secure our entrance into heaven. We have to fight for these things time and time again. You understand election, justification, and sanctification. I'm telling you now, outside the Council of Trent, the battleground for the doctrine of salvation by grace alone is being fought on the area of glorification. And when you stand before God on that final day, you will say, saved by grace alone. 
My works do not contribute to my salvation. My only hope is in Christ. His works are enough for me. I stand upon His merit. I know no firmer ground. That, dear child of God, is a distinguishing between grace and works. Never, ever, ever insert your works into your assurance in such a way that you believe you're accepted by God because you do this, that, or the other thing. Saved by grace alone. That is our only hope and plea. Let's close, please, in prayer. Let's look upon the Lord again for His help in these things. I appreciate your patience. Again, I know going through all of that material on Trent, but I see this is the battleground. We still are fighting these things in our modern age. We must stand clear as Reformed Protestants and not allow error to come in on the right hand or on the left. Eternal God and Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the time again today to reflect upon these things. We stand complete in Christ alone. And we thank you, Lord, that in your grace you do work these works in us. And that we are made more like under Christ in our sanctification. But our standing is in Christ alone. We rest upon his merits. Help us, O God. We pray for those in this gathering. They're they're confused regarding salvation. They're, they're, They're confused regarding their own salvation. Open their eyes to behold the glory of Christ Jesus. Cause them to seek his face today. Bless our fellowship now, the things prepared for us. Bless them to our bodily needs. And give help because we come again this afternoon to seek thy face. Bless our time of prayer. We look to thee in Jesus' precious name. Amen.